Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's uh, Roxanne Durhage of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Today, I have a special guest. Um, I'm going to say he's my speaker coach. He's my colleague at CAPS, and he brings a lot of wisdom with him. And uh, his name is Jason Reed. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, you're welcome, Roxanne. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Now, Jason brings a lot of uh, expertise in the speaking uh, fields, but what I was interested in us spending the time with is around... Um, he does keynotes on uh, invisible disabilities. So Jason, I want you to tell people a little bit about, first of all, you, mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit specifically about um, kind of the talk that you do, and then we'll start into talking just about, um, you know, the invisibility of this, the disabilities that people experience and kind of what your expertise is around that. Yes, yeah, so invisible disability is... It's not new, but it is a new thing for a lot of businesses and also for a lot of of people who are actually um, getting invisible disabilities, because we're talking now about, depending on the study, um, 30 to 40% of the workplace now has some sort of invisible disability, which could be a chronic illness, it could be a mental health condition. And then there's also these areas of what we call neurodivergence, which are ADHD, autism, learning differences, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And, you know, for me, I guess I was kind of a pioneer in a way, um, particularly in the, um, in the chronic, chronic illness category, because when I was eight years old, I actually got uh, both Crohn's disease and arthritis, which are both autoimmune mm. diseases, okay. which, which means, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, your immune system attacks parts of your body. So for Crohn's mm. disease, it attacks the gut, um, the jet digestive system. And for arthritis, it attacks the joints. So, you know, I got this when I was eight and kids are pretty adaptable. So to be honest, it didn't have that big an impact on me or that that you might think for an eight-year-old. But once I started working in organizations and bureaucracies, and this is a while ago too. So there wasn't a lot of flexibility and there was almost zero understanding of these sort of invisible illnesses. So what people used to think was if somebody was sick, you know, you would be able to see that they were sick. So people tended Mm -hmm. to be very suspicious of anybody with an invisible illness. And this was something that I not only received from, you know, employers, but also, you know, growing up sometimes with teachers or relatives, um, But really, I think the big impact was, you know, when I was in the workplace and I started realizing, wow, unless I get people to understand, you know, where I'm coming from and my issues here, it's going to really impact my career. And I was lucky enough, um, I ended up working at, um, I was in television and I ended up working at a place called the Weather Network. Um, Canadians will probably know the Weather Network. (laughs) And um, they were a really fantastic company and particularly my boss. Um, He was the first person who really... Um, I had a lot of trust with, and he asked me a lot, you know, about my illness and they really tried to, as much as possible, give me a certain amount of flexibility, which isn't a lot in live television, but as much as they could. 
and I think the big turning point came when um, they asked me to become head of news and information content for the network. And I had seen my predecessors burn out in that job because you can imagine 24 hour news, it's, it's a busy job. Um, but my boss said this, he said, look, Jason, we want you to do the job the way you can do it. Obviously there's results we want you to get, but how you get those results is up to you, make it work, which is like the best thing you could possibly say to somebody with an invisible disability. And here's where it gets interesting because what I thought was going to be the thing that held me back actually turned out to be um, kind of my superpower in a way because I was open and honest with my employees about my own illness and they became open and honest with me about theirs. And I started to realize that almost half my department had some sort of invisible disability, like so many staff mm -hmm. and nobody had known about that before. So by being open and then by having just a very flexible approach to accommodation, um, we were able to make huge strides in both productivity and quality of work. So that's kind of what I sort of preach now is this idea of bringing it out into the open and also recognizing just the small flexibilities and the things that we can do once we understand invisible disability that makes a huge difference when it comes to productivity. You know, and, and when you talk about that, right, because obviously with me being a mental health specialist, that's always that's been something that has always been a struggle, right? Mm -hmm. When an employee goes off, they've got that had an issue with anxiety or depression or, or uh, say substances or whatever. And there is like a, a hush over the crowd when people come back to work. Right. And then, you know, people say, well, you know, what should I say to them? And, I, you know, we, oftentimes in consulting, we would say, well, if, if someone had cancer, or, you know, something else going on for them, what would you say to them? You'd say, you know, how are you doing? You know, how are you making out? Um, you know, is, you know, is there anything I could help you with? Whatever. But with the, the element that you're talking about when it's invisible, um, that conversation becomes difficult because it depends, again, if it's, if it's mental health, of course, that's that whole stigma. Um, but for you, like, I mean, I've met you, had you not shared this with me, I would not have known Jason. You know, and so that's, it has to, yeah. that's the element of, of trust, which clearly you are with an employer that was able to de demonstrate some kind of safety that allowed you to say, hey, I've got this, you know, kind of situation. Can we talk about it? But I, I wonder how many employees might kind of feel like that now. Like you said, if 30% of the workforce you're saying is having an issue with an invisible mm -hmm. disability, I'm not so sure if we've come really far along with the openness with sharing some of the things. Yes, you know, we have made some, some would say superficial and some would say more significant strides in terms of being open about mental health. Um, but you're, you're correct in that I think a lot of people, there's, there's still a stigma there and there's still a fear there. And here's the interesting thing. I think the more, much like mental health, the more we talk about it, the more people realize they're not alone. Um, and they may realize that the boss that they're frightened about trying to explain this to maybe that boss has an invisible illness too. Um, one of the things that I, I've suggested to some companies, um, if the people are comfortable with it, is to almost have like mentors, like have people in sort of more senior managerial or supervisory roles who actually, you know, come out of the closet, so to speak, and say, hey, you know what, I'm a diabetic and, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, managing that and managing my job, or I have Crohn's or lupus or whatever. And it's, mm. It sounds frightening, and for some people it is, but I think once we make those steps and just bring it out there, um, that it's going to be so much easier to talk about and then so much easier to work around it because we won't have that additional obstacle. 
and you know the thing is with accommodations right like when we t- think about accommodations i think of when i was teaching at university and i would get these you know ieps where i would have to have quiet rooms i'd have to um you know make sure the person had the right environment to be able to write tests and then i'm talking you know 20 years ago which was like you know at first as a professor you're like whoa this is you know and then you realized that those individuals really it was that space that allowed them they did very very well but not having the knowledge or not sharing the information that's needed to adapt the environment that becomes difficult and then in turn people then say like you know um how come jason was off again he seemed he looks okay i don't see jason acting any differently and now he's been gone a week and he's back and i don't know what's what's wrong with with managers or leaders when when you're kind of um you know, doing your keynotes on this topic. What kind of suggestions do you have for managers that are uncomfortable with invis- invisible disabilities? What kind of things do you suggest that they start to consider in reference to skills um, in, impro- in, in kind of dealing with employees that might have an invisible disability that they know, but maybe the employee is a little bit more timid at coming forward? Well, you know, in terms of the human side, um, and a lot of what I talk about, uh, rather than the academic side of chronic illness, is that real human side of manager-employee interaction. Okay. So, you know, obviously, you know, the big thing we have to start out with is trust. Um, and trust comes from you know, two major things. And one is being as honest as possible as you can mm-hmm. with people. And obviously, as managers and leaders, sometimes we can't disclose everything. But, you know, people know when someone's giving them the runaround and when someone's being straightforward. So if you're straightforward, that's obviously a plus in getting people to be open. Vulnerability, like what you disclose about yourself. Again, you know, you don't have to disclose everything. But, you know, if an employee sees you being vulnerable and disclosing, you know, a challenge about yourself or maybe even a family member who has an illness, they're more likely to come forward. Um, But I think the third key thing for building trust is as a manager, never promising anything that you can't personally deliver on. And this works in, of course, all different aspects, but particularly with chronic illness, because sometimes um, what managers do is they want to help so badly that when somebody comes into their office with this challenge, they'll promise them the world because they want the employee to have these solutions. And then they will go to, you know, somebody who's higher up, whose decision that actually is. And they may say, well, no, we don't do that. Our policy is this other thing. So then once you go back to that person and say, yeah, you know, the stuff I promised you, we can't do it. That totally kills trust. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the first level of making Mm -hmm. sure you've got that trust there. And then in terms of difficult conversations in general, I think one of the key things that that managers in particular need to realize is if an employee is approaching you um, about a disclosure or accommodation or anything else, this is not a business problem to them. I mean, it is to you as the manager, but to them, it's something much more serious. They're thinking about their livelihood being at stake and maybe even obviously their health being at stake. So because of that, there's this level of emotion that often begins conversations that managers are kind of leery of, right? And there's a reason to be leery of it because those emotions and that fear, because really the emotions fear, is basically an obstacle between you and that person. So what I suggest is actually counterintuitive to what a lot of managers are taught. Um, A lot of managers are taught that to be a proper manager, you need to be detached emotionally and cool. (laughs) But I, I can guarantee you when a person comes in and they have that energy, if you start to be standoffish, that's going to make that energy worse. It's going to bring that fear up rather than bring it down. So 
I'm a big believer in the good human being thing. So just acknowledging, hey, you know what? I understand this is probably a very difficult thing for you to go through right now. And this isn't just a business problem with for you. This is something more fundamental. So let's chat and let's see what we can do to, to move this along. Just acknowledging the fact that they're going through something serious is, is really huge in just bringing that emotional level down and being able to have that conversation that both the manager and the employee want to have, which is, okay, how do we, how do we manage this? You know, it's interesting that you say that regardless of the issues, because you know that I talk a lot about return on relationship, which is already about, you know, we bring such diverse, like all of us, right? Like in our worlds, there's so many things like, you know, with me, I'm from Trinidad or, you know, growing up in a rural spot, moving here as a foreign, you know, everybody's identity is so unique. And then inbred in that is things that people are dealing with, um, and that comfort to be able to say, you know, I, you know, I wasn't well because my lupus flared up and, you know, you know, I couldn't get out of bed. I was in pain and those types of things, because maybe physically you're not seeing that. Yeah. And then, you know, and then for the employer, the employee, I guess the manager to say, you know, tell me more about that. Because really, if you don't know about what, you know, some invisible disability is about and you're not understanding the person's reality to your point, Jason, then it becomes mm-hmm. I don't know, Uh, you know, I don't know what that's supposed to be. And that conversational piece seems, you know, like you said, would drop the person's guard a bit because person to person, they know they're being listened to and what's, what's their reality is important. And then in turn, instead of going to performance, kind of eventually getting to the point where you have that softer conversation about how can we help you out, you know, based on days that you're having tough times or whatever. How much do you think leadership teams know about or senior levels know about uh, invisible disabilities compared to say visible disabilities? Because I know we've come a long way with visible disabilities. What, what are you seeing out there in the kind of different environments, different workplaces in reference to um, invisible disabilities? I think the recognition is obviously becoming a little bit greater. Uh, one of the interesting things, you know, on a personal level is I started doing these talks 10 years ago and 10 years ago, these talks were a very hard sell. People had a general interest. Oh, that might be nice, but there was, there was no budget. And you can usually tell what a company's priorities are, um, when it comes to budgets. Um, and this has now become a top priority with a lot of companies. They want to know more. So I think in that respect, there's been a huge change. The other interesting thing that I note on a more personal level, um, after I do these presentations, sometimes, you know, when I talk to managers, there's a lot of experience and skill level there that they're not necessarily tapping into. So when I told my story about how, um, you know, having to deal with a, an invisible illness kind of became my superpower as a manager because of these skills that I developed. Um, I had another manager say to me, hey, look, you know what? I, I, I didn't realize this, but because my children have learning disabilities, learning differences, you're absolutely right. I have a lot of personal experience in this that I can bring to my job that I had never thought of. And now I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about the things that I can draw from my personal life to actually use um, to help uh, my employees. So like I said, I think there's more experience out there than people necessarily give themselves credit for. So hopefully that's something that that people start to recognize too, that um, the things that they've gone through um, can actually provide valuable experience to them, guiding them 
going ahead and dealing with other people who have the same issues. So for the person that's out there, and I would say that sometimes stigma makes us stay quiet, right? Mm -hmm. And and like you said, we're coming along, but even with, uh, in my realm with anxiety, like, you know, the mental health realm, we're coming, we're, you know, today's mental, uh, Bell's mental health day for the Canadians that are listening. We, you know, it's, it's, it's front and center. We have people talking about things, but the average employee sometimes maybe more on the, on the medical versus the mental, let's say the mental health, we're, we're, we're kind of putting that card on the table was we're trying to destigmatize those types of things. But with the employee that's listening and said and, and is, is afraid to go forward, from your what words of wisdom would you share with them? I think that's very, very important for you to speak to them directly about what kind of things you might have struggled with and then what steps you took, you know, a very long time ago to start, um, you know, going towards your employer. Yes. So disclosure is one of the, the really big issues, right? And when you have an invisible illness or really have any disability, <clears throat> you can usually think of a whole bunch of reasons why you don't want to disclose, right? Stigma, fear of being passed up for promotions, fear of people seeing you differently. But I usually suggest you know, to people that there are two good reasons why they should disclose. Uh, number one is you know, the company often can't bring to bear um, its resources to help you unless they know what's wrong. So that's kind of the obvious thing. But number two, and this is the thing that we don't talk about enough, and it is as um, inevitable as death and taxes, and that's this. In lieu of actual information, people will create their own stories. That's just human nature. Mm -hmm. So if your performance is starting to decline, or for instance, if you're on medication that's making you irritable and you're having fights with your um, other employees, people aren't just gonna ignore that. And it's not like people aren't going to talk about it, but if they don't know the reason why, they're still gonna talk about it, but they're going to come up with their own stories. Mm -hmm. And let me give you a great example of this. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was a manager in an organization. She had quite a large team and she had a chronic illness as well. And she had a flare up and she recognized that she'd have to take about three months off a short-term disability. And she had told her own manager had basically said, Hey, you know, just let my, let my team know I'll be back in a, in a few months. Um, and, you know, she went to do her thing, but here's what happened in her absence is um, higher ups at the company decided that because of confidentiality, and there's a difference between confidentiality and secrecy, that nobody would be told the reason for her absence. So her employees came in one day, she wasn't there. And they said, well, where is she? Well, we can't tell you. And the next day passed, and the next week passed. And do you think people just accepted the fact that their boss was suddenly mysteriously gone? No, they started talking about it. So she was getting phone calls from people thinking who had thought she may have been fired, or there were stories that she'd been suspended, or stories that she was near death. And these are unfortunately the things that happen when people don't know the information. So keeping that in mind, sometimes it's good for people to have some sort of, you know, idea about what's going on with your health. Now, that being said, one other thing that people are afraid of is sharing too much. And I'm always a big believer on the need to know principle. Uh, and this is key, you know, even if you're just having a disclosure conversation with your boss, it's very easy to overwhelm a manager with all sorts of details about your condition. So what I suggest to people is they actually practice with family members, having this conversation and telling just giving just enough information that the manager will have, you know, enough information for them to make the decisions they need to make. 
So, you know, keeping the information minimal on a need to know basis is a benefit just because you don't want to overwhelm people both emotionally and also logically. And I, you know, what you, what you uh, talked to earlier is that as the employee, I'm coming and it's my life, right? So I've got all the stuff. And if I've not mm-hmm. shared it before and I'm concerned, like you're right, my performance maybe has been waning a bit. Maybe, you know, I've been having some more missed days or my productivity is down, all those things. So I'm a bit overwhelmed. I don't want to lose my livelihood. And I'm, I'm finally mustering up the courage to share it. And if I haven't, I mean, it's going to come out kind of backwards probably. So I think I like that, that you could just think through what, what are the top three things I'd like to share with my manager? You know, what is the impact of my, you know, invisible disability and kind of how has it been impacting me? And just practicing that you're so right, because then you take the emotion potentially out of it, not completely, Mm. but at least you bring it down a bit that allows the other person to go, Oh, I, I, I get it. So how can I, how can I be of service or how can I help you so that we could figure out what skills is, do you need or what kind of accommodations do you need? And we can come up with a win-win kind of thing versus the manager, the supervisor kind of telling you what they think you should be doing, it being more collaborative. You know? Yeah. I mean, if you give people too much detail, they're left wondering which of these details is most important, mm-hmm. right? And they Good may points. pick on something that you say that's actually kind of irrelevant. So you need to do your own prioritizing on what details are the most important for the manager to know. Absolutely. Now you um, have done this keynote, you're saying almost uh, 10, 10 years now. Um, Do you find that certain sectors or is it that there's a broad brush of um, people recognizing uh, that they need this knowledge now? Yeah. You know what? It really has sort of come from a a trickle to almost a flood. So, you know, I I can't really say that there's, you know, looking back on it, you know, this particular year, it was this industry. Um, But what I'm noticing for myself right now is it's a lot of the larger organizations and both um, organizations in government, um, those type of organizations, as well as, you know, for-profit enterprises. So most of the... um, most of the clients, keynote clients that I've had have been basic global organizations or um, national or provincial governments. Those seem to be the big ones right now. And recently I was doing some research um, on neurodiversity. So I wanted to chat a little bit about that because I think what we're recognizing is that uh, with neurodiversity, there's such breadth and depth. And uh, mm-hmm. so I was you know, educating myself a bit more. And what I recognize is a lot more employers are realizing that these, in, these individuals have such sometimes supreme skills at, in certain parts of their organization that they're looking at it now as a, a, a benefit versus kind of how am I going to, you know, what am I going to do with someone that's got, you know, ADD or uh, maybe they're on the spectrum or whatever, and they're fitting them better. Recruiters, I've heard, I've um, from the research that I was doing, are recognizing that, and they're able to recruit sometimes some of the best talents for certain sectors based on this neurodivergence. Whereas before it was like, oh, well, you know, we've had somebody that has an issue. Now it's like, how is it that we actually source individuals out? And of course, things like IT and coding and all those things, a lot more people are recognizing that, you know, we want to attract people with these skills versus in the past, it would have been like, you know, how do we kind of manage them so that they don't impact productivity? which has been, it was inspiring to read a lot of the things that I was reading um, about the, the area. 
Yeah, it really is a fascinating area because, you know, for people who may not have much of a background in reading about this, the whole kind of neurodivergence movement was this way of looking at things that used to be considered disabilities mm -hmm. and looking at them basically saying, okay, these people um, are people who's, who have brains that work differently. They don't work less efficiently, but the problem is because they're different from the norm, all of our systems and the way we've set up our policies and ways of working are geared towards this, I don't know, say 90% majority. So these people are just as efficient and effective, but the disability comes in and that they're working in a system that doesn't necessarily take advantage of how their brain works. Mm -hmm. So once you make that mental shift, like you say, Roxanne, you know, a lot of opportunities open up if you're uh, a leader or you have an organization to hire people who are really exceptional at what they do, and then making sure that they have that environment that allows them um, to bring that um, exceptional value to the organization. And I think it's such a benefit, right? Because if you really look mm -hmm. at it, if you're saying that 30% of your population, I forget that, has some kind of um, invisible disability, um, that's a that's a significant amount of people, and if your if your fit is based on that ninety percent with that certain brain, the quote unquote the normal brain or whatever that is, how much are you missing if you're not kind of looking at your system um, from an aerial shot? Because really, different parts of your business would require certain subsets of skills that might be fit but better fitted with somebody with a certain, um, you know, like neurodivergence or somebody that can focus in it a different way. I, I give you an example. This is a, you know, talking about relatability, Jason, mm -hmm. like, so one of my very best friends, um, so we met at the gym and, you know, young ladies and whatever, and then she gets pregnant. She has beautiful baby boy and whatever. And I have my son a little bit later. So my son had never watched TV for two years of his life. All he would watch were things, um, baby Mozart, baby Einstein, everything. I just did. I tried to do that. So one day my, my friend comes over with her son. He, you couldn't tell, but he was autistic, highly functioning autistic, but was autistic. So they, she, they come over for a play date with my son, right? Who is, I think, two at that time. And her son's probably about six. So I thought, well, why not? You know, moms can have a visit and I'm going to put on this movie and they're going to, the boys are going to enjoy it. Well, guess what happened? Talk about a lack of knowledge. So here we are and um, the, the boys are watching it. And, you know, RJ is always mesmerized and he's like right in with every everything that's going on in the screen, every sense, and he's right into it. And at the same time, he is watching this with Mitchell, who's my friend's son. He freaks out because what had happened for him is because these movies were made with all the sensory input. Mm -hmm. he, he, he's already got a lot of sensory input going on, but it was probably the time that all his senses were lined up. And he was so, up, and I was devastated because I hadn't thought about it, right? Not having been around that. And it was, it was interesting. It was, it was talk about having those personal experiences. So what has started to happen is for all of us, as our friend groups, we were thoughtful at birthday parties. If there was, you know, too many things that was overstimulating, we would try to kind of ensure that he was taken care of so that he was okay. Because we're not thinking about all these things, mm. right? And, um, you know, and even my son, as he grew, he would say, this is my special friend, Mitchell. 
Um, he's very lovely, but at times he can be, sometimes he's a bit different, but he's my friend. So even my son, as he grew, started to kind of understand what he was like. And I, you know, I think I'm sharing that story because for me, I was remiss because I was like, I, I felt sad, but it taught me how I needed to learn something a bit different. And I, you know, I'm just thinking for employers, if you look at it as something as innocent as that, and you take that information and, you know, what, what breadth and depth could you get give to your employee yeah. base if you're if you really take things into uh, consideration? You're absolutely right, and this it's constant learning. You know, I have a little bit of of a lead. I'm a little bit of a pioneer because of what I've been through. But you know, in doing what I'm doing around invisible disability, particularly with new things like neurodivergence, I'm learning new stuff all the time. And I think again with managers and leaders, we have to give ourselves a bit of a break. I think it's important to learn about these things, but when we make a mistake um, and when we feel like we've had this failure, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did this and I should have done that, um, to not get too hung up on it. Um, because what this does is make us worry more about ourselves than you know, the person going through the event. So, you know, for instance, when I was, uh, when I was a, a manager, I went into a hiring meeting and I was five minutes late because the news is busy and we were kind of TV studio and all of the other managers were there, plus the, uh, the young lady that we were interviewing. So I did what I always did. I went up and said, hi, my name is Jason. I'm the news manager. I stuck up my arm and it just seemed like my arm was frozen there for a few seconds. And then I came to the realization that this young lady didn't have a right arm. Now, of course, she ended up shaking my hand with her, her left and said, pleased to meet you. I sat down. But guess what? Do you think for the next half an hour that I was concentrating on her and her answers? Or do you think in my own brain, I was going, oh, my God, Jason, how stupid was that? How silly did you look in front of all these people? Right. We make it about us. Um, so I like telling the story like straight off when I, when I do these keynotes, because it just gets everybody to relax a little bit. It's like, you know what? It's messy. We're not going to be perfect in our reactions. We're all still learning. This is something that we're not, you know, for the most part, we didn't grow up being taught in school. So no. just have an open mind, learn and adapt and move on and don't, you know, beat yourself up over stuff. And we're all going to make mistakes and we have to yeah. be gentle and kind, I think, with anything else, with mm -hmm. all with all the diversity. And I think, you know, we are in a time which it feels like such an open time that we're willing, people are willing to learn. And you talked earlier about having ambassadors, right? Or people that share their stories at the different levels of the organization. I think if you can do, find people that are willing and um, to share those, what a gift you would give to someone that's maybe struggling that maybe growing up, they, you know, they felt marginalized or whatever. And then they, so therefore they kept quiet more. If you have these um, ambassadors in your organization, what a, what a gift you would give to anyone that's really wanting to be a bit more transparent about what they're going through. Absolutely. Now, Jason, for everybody listening, I know they're probably thinking, wow, he's been doing this for a while. <laughs> And um, my organization needs it, or I need to, you know, chat with him about um, where I'm at, or your some of the keynotes as you do. Tell uh, everyone where they can reach, get a reach you, or get a hold of you to be able to chat about the possibility of you doing some work with them. Yes, yeah, so well, it's I'm very easy to find. Um, just in your URL, type invisibledisabilityspeaker.com. So I have that URL. I'm also number one on Google. So if you look up invisible disability speakers, I usually pop up uh, and you can access my website, see what I offer. Um, I also have a book that I wrote uh, 10 years ago, Thriving in the Age of Chronic Illness and Disability. Um, so that's there for your perusal as well. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. So what am I learning uh, or what did I learn a bit different today? I think just to uh, try and if you fumble <laughs> or if you fall, just recognize it, try to ground yourself to focus on the person in front of you so you don't lose the time and you learn something different about someone that you could maybe help out someone in the future. So for anyone listening, if you're wanting to learn more about uh, how to get connected, um, uh, I speak on authentic leadership and uh, I have my new book coming out in about six weeks. It's uh, the return on relationships how um, authentic leaders can amplify their skills. So if you're looking for some support, just reach out to me at chatwithroxanne.com. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.